This is Purple Radio On Demand. Hello and welcome to Westminster Wednesday, back with another episode. This episode we're going to be covering over a couple of topics that have been left rumbling uh, over the Christmas break. Uh, we're going to be discussing Brexit and uh, US politics. So uh, I'm your host Joe Oxley. If you want to listen to previous episodes, go on Spotify and go on Purple Radio Demand and then you should see Westminster Wednesday episodes there. Before we uh, start the conversation, I'd like to introduce Kira and uh, Dan. So hi, I'm Kira Davies. I'm a third year politics student and I'm a women's officer for Durham Union Labour Association. And uh, hi, I'm Daniel. I'm doing a second year politics and philosophy degree and I'm the current president of the Durham Liberal Democrats. Okay, thank you very much for introducing yourself. So obviously over Christmas on uh, January the 1st, UK and the EU have uh, a U-Trade agreement enforced. Um, it was concluded late in December, um, so ultimately after years of argument, general elections, and even the prorogement of Parliament, we ended up with this deal. So my first question to Kira is, is the EU-UK trade deal a good or bad deal and why? I think it's quite a difficult question to answer. Um, if you're a Remainer, then it's always going to be a bad deal. A bad deal is the fact that we've left all together and one I share. Um, but, it, but if you are a Brexiteer, I think it has positives and negatives to it. I mean, there's there's some great parts in terms of the, the zero tariffs and the, the zero quotas needed, but there's also some terrible parts in the fact that, you know, fishing was fishing industry in the UK was completely disregarded. There's still a five and a half year transition period that people will have to wait on. Um, they've added things like a, a new Erasmus scheme that especially costs exactly the same amount of money for the UK government. Effectively, it is like staying in the EU just with parts that they didn't like. And that main part was immigration. And you can see that from the fact that you're only allowed into a country for 90 days with, and, then, and then you need a visa, which works for business people, but doesn't work for people that want to live in other EU countries and this country as well. And I think that's a disgrace to sort of low wage workers that want to come here because of the fact that you now need to earn a certain amount of money, which most people that take on these jobs do not. So it, it's an interesting one, but I definitely don't think that if you voted for Brexit, you're kind of getting the deal that you wanted. Um, and I, I think as in terms of it's better than no deal, but I would like to, I think, focus on the fact that this is as bare bones a deal as possible. I think it's, it, it's terrible how unrepresented a lot of sectors are in this deal how little it covers in terms of our trade relation with Europe. Obviously, it's to be expected because it's a very complex um, trade relationship that we're trying to haggle over. But frankly, I think that this deal is is barely much of a deal at all. It, it's just staving off no Brexit so that we can have two more decades of discussing and haggling this relationship, which I think, quite frankly, we needed to sort out such a complex relationship in the first place. I think the the fact that sectors like finance, which Britain is obviously quite good in, are so underrepresented, really just shows how this isn't at all the end, this isn't at all the final cut or the final deal. This is just a patch over for um, staving off what is probably a disastrous no deal. So obviously uh, Starmer uh, voted for the deal 
in sort of your uh, sort of suggestion there, Dan, that it was um, either a no deal or this deal. And so my question to you, Kira, as the Labour representative, was Starmer right to vote for this deal? I think Keir Starmer was in a really difficult position when it came to this because Labour, just, just like the Conservatives, are really split on their opinion on Brexit. And he was in an awkward position in what do you do in this circumstance? Because a deal is better than no deal. And he made it abundantly clear when he voted for it. I'm voting for this because it's better than no deal. But I'm saying that this is Boris Johnson's deal. And this is as good as he could have come up with. And I think that is correct because Boris Johnson was one of, of the very few big figures that pushed for Brexit. So now have it on your head, be it, because... This is what you told people you were going to get. I don't think anyone believes we're ever going to see the £350 million back to the NHS every year. That's a load of, a load of rubbish. So I think Keir Starmer did what he had to do in this situation. And the problem is, is that Brexit came at a time, conveniently for the Conservatives, of the country being in turmoil because of coronavirus. So actually, Boris Johnson played an excellent card there because people forgot about it, really. The papers weren't even interested because... Why put so why splash Brexit and talk about that for weeks and weeks and weeks when something bigger is going on in the country? So it, it was a, a way to hide behind a, sh a shady deal. And I, I do agree with Dan that the deal doesn't talk about a lot of things. It is basically, it is bare bones. And Boris Johnson can hide behind that by dealing with coronavirus instead. Is a bare deal, according to many critics and uh, many commentators, do you feel, Dan, if the government extended the transition, uh, which they did, uh, which they didn't do for political reason, do you reckon we would have got a better deal than what we had? I mean, I suppose in a very, if you're going to be very mercenary about it, we could have perhaps gotten a better deal by, um, you know, if we dealt with coronavirus very well because um, obviously Europe and Britain is very much struggling with it because of our reliance on the service industry. Uh, perhaps we could have got the upper hand in coronavirus and used that, but even so, that would be hurting us and Europe for the sake of uh, getting a marginally better deal, which uh, at that point is uh, some cost. I think, I think the fact is that this, the, the full deal, our full relationship, is going to take decades. And if you look at, for example, uh, Switzerland, which turned down EU membership in the 90s and is still negotiating various terms and minutiae with the EU and has had several trade spats, I think we, we've, we've got to expect that's what we're in for. This is going to, this is a relationship that has been over 50 years in the making and is going to take over 50 years probably in the in the breaking of it because it's so um it's so all-encompassing in terms of british trade and foreign policy so i so effectively no i think they would have to extend it for years and years and years in order to get a quote-unquote better deal the fact is it's just going to be up to future governments to fill in the gaps that this deal has left and talking about the gaps in the deal, Erasmus was left out. And I think a lot of young people, a lot of students, will think that it's a huge loss to them. And the details of the children's scheme that came out uh, seem to go against the government's levelling up agenda, which many uh, critics say, because it adds extra costs 
to um, studying in Europe, which means that, you know, low income students or uh, families of low income students who struggle financially will struggle to access uh, studying European courses. So my question to you is, will the children's scheme be successful? I think it's a really hard question to answer given the lack of information just like the rest of the deal that we know right now about the Turing scheme. I mean currently if you study abroad and you're outside of the EU you do get extra funding from the government and it tends to be a fairly decent amount but the problem is that costs money and voters don't like the idea of lining the pockets of what they already see as quite privileged student groups to then go and study abroad for a year, which a lot of people see as a holiday rather than perhaps the great learning experience and cultural experience and the good experience it gives for the for the economy by having sort of students from different backgrounds come and meet each other and, and also work on a, that's quite a, that's a big part of the Erasmus scheme is people working as well. So it's difficult to know, but the funding that they've so, uh, assigned already to the children's scheme definitely isn't going to be enough. It's not going to compare to what Erasmus gave and the House of Lords, uh, I think in 2014 it was, said that £1 billion was expected in the next six years for UK students alone from the Erasmus. So the government trying to find that money when they're already saying that students cost them far too much is going to be quite an interesting one. And um, I think we'll see in the next couple of years of what's going to happen. Just to piggyback on the sort of finance aspect of it, I, I looked up before this about the Turing scheme and the government and the amount of Erasmus money the government gets from the EU and the Turing scheme will be less money than Erasmus was. Obviously, when you're measuring success, it, it'd be kind of hard to measure this sort of thing. But I think the key question that, about the Turing scheme and about the sort of success, quote unquote, will be dependent on what countries cooperate with the Turing scheme and what countries are let into the Turing scheme. I think obviously with Erasmus, with Erasmus going, we've lost a huge opportunity for European integration and for you know learning about other European countries. And I think my main worry with the Turing scheme is that it will <clears throat> consolidate the sort of block of um, effectively old empire countries, um, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, which obviously uh, Britain is looking at uh, close trade relations with these places and already has a lot of expats in these locations. I do worry that the Turing scheme might just reinforce this sort of cultural link to the detriment of sending UK students to all other places in the world and keeping them in these, you know, white, English-speaking, um, effectively very similar to the UK countries. Obviously, I could be very wrong if the Turing scheme is adopted by a lot of countries and it increases the funding. We might well see um, a very good network of global British graduates. Thank you very much for your two comments on that. Uh, so moving forward, you guys have already said that this is a bare bones still. The facts of the situation were that this deal was signed very late in December with documents of how we export and import goods and services only came out a matter of hours uh, before January the 1st hit. So how did you feel negotiations went? I think negotiations were poor at the best. The relationship with the EU at times got extremely fraught um, and the relationship with France is probably at an all-time low and I think we can all we can all agree that 
Macron's decisions with with the lorry drivers in Kent were based upon Brexit and not just based on the fact that he was worried about coronavirus. I mean, realistically, how many of those lorry drivers, I think I think they did announce the figures and it was a very small amount actually had the virus. And um, it, it was a political statement of how negotiations had gone and our relationship is also at an all time low in that respect. I think negotiations went on for far too long. And actually the fact that the, the it's a bare bones deal is testament to the fact that it wasn't very they weren't very good because it does make you question you know we voted to leave in 2016 and it's it was four years later and even beyond really by the time it got to sort of 2021 and it was there was nothing there it was it was virtually nothing the deal so what was going on during negotiations they were they weren't effective we changed prime ministers during this time it it was a mess essentially it was it was a terrible mess by the end of it and i think just the fact it's over to the relief of the public is actually a big part I, anyone i've ever spoken to has been their opinion of brexit at this point is this, it's done and that's a good thing because they just cannot stand to listen to it on bbc news every morning every evening because most people most ordinary britons don't want to hear about it anymore uh, i think i completely agree obviously <clears throat> all that i'd like to highlight is that it just showed the extent of nationalistic headbutting and, and clashes that, that um, EU Brexit relations have caused and you know been a part of. Uh, it's it simply testament to how I think deluded and spiteful um, I think in terms in some terms both sides have become. But I especially want to criticise Britain in its ridiculous um, ridiculous resistance to the idea that it could be you know the the better half of this trade agreement that, that and have the upper hand when really they're fighting with one of the biggest trade blocks in the world and it's all bluster and nationalistic fantasy i think i think if trade relations go on like this if negotiations go on like this then we're going to be getting nothing done for ages and i desperately hope that one side has a sense to bury the hatchet and uh, start behaving like adults on this. Yeah, so um, Kira, you mentioned that the British public want to move on for this. Since January 1st, we've heard many um, sort of stories of features of Brexit coming back to haunt um, those who said the Remainers were spouting Project Fear. And in fact, it could, it could be coming Project Reality. So my question is, has Project Fear become Project Reality? But will these issues be a short-term issue or will uh, these issues continue into the future? I think um, actually what Dan had said earlier on this, you can build on that a lot. The, the lack of, of information, including the trade deal, will come back to haunt prime ministers and governments and even the British public for years and years to come. And we will face the consequences of this as things that should have been solved in these negotiations are then solved two, three, four, five years down the line. And I don't I don't think it's quite project fear as some of the remainers sold when you know the lead up to the 2016 referendum was happening. But I do think that we will deal with this for a very long time. In fact, the fishing when I was reading about it, the, the five and a half years after that's annual negotiations we have to do with the EU and how much does this sort of cost? I mean, a lot of Brexiteers voted for it because of the fact that they didn't want to send money to the EU, they wanted money back to the NHS. 
well, if we're having annual negotiations just on fishing, how much is Brexit in the long, long run actually going to have cost us? And how much could we have saved by not doing it at all? But this is when we come to talk about, well, actually, David Cameron did approach the, the EU and said, look, people aren't very happy with you in Britain. Can we negotiate a good deal? And they turned us away. So I will blame a lot of this of of this with the British government. But the EU did know that people weren't exactly happy and they chose to ignore it. And I think if any other countries start having the same temperament as it's been suggested before, it could be dangerous for the EU because it's quite easy to believe that everyone will vote to stay in just like a lot of us did in 2016 and it is still haunting us now so be careful who you turn away when they come knocking for a renegotiation and perhaps you might not stay the biggest and the most successful trade block in the world i think just to just to piggyback on that it, um a really interesting point there was about the amount of diplomacy and the amount we're going to have to spend renegotiating with the eu um, there's been obviously a lot of talk about Global Britain as being the alternative, but a key part of Global Britain, a lot of scholars are now saying, is going to be negotiating with the world and sending our diplomats to various different countries. And if we're occupying a lot of time and foreign office money with just sorting out this mess, then we're really not getting anywhere with Global Britain. Uh, we're, we're just trying to desperately get back some relation with Europe, but then we can't just drop that because obviously there are implications. As for the terms of um, where the project fear becomes reality, I'm, 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 I think I'm quite optimistic. I do not think there'll be long-term shortages of medicine. I think inevitably there will be short-term ones. But the British business, British um, academia, these things move on and they do well without the government um, having to be competent, quite frankly. Um, and so I, I do think in the long term, things will smooth over, you know, for people, for, you know, in day-to-day -day life. But there will be political bumps in the road and political issues for a long time to come. Those won't be terrifying um, on the ground issues that people face. It will be probably just the, an absolute mess that every government minister is going to have to face from now until... So, OK, thank you very much for your comments there. Um, so basically what you guys are saying is that it's almost going to be the comparison that will be made in the future is this is where we are now. Of course, businesses are doing well, but look what we could have had. And maybe that's the argument that future governments and future politicians will have to contend with. And there may not be necessarily the material effects to people in hand if they're doing well now compared to what we could have had. Uh, maybe quite a hard arguments for Remainers in the future to contend with. But moving on now to US uh, politics. In the last week, we saw US politics come to a halt. We saw insurrection at the Capitol last week with President Trump supporters uh, essentially marching to the Capitol and going into offices, uh, guns were shot, and sadly five people lost their lives in this event, including one police officer. Uh, it was another moment in US history and Donald Trump's presidency. My question to you is, what were your immediate thoughts as this event was unfolding? Um, as, as for immediate thoughts, I, I wasn't particularly shocked, I don't think, even before, I'm not a pessimistic person or a grim person, but even before the election, uh, the election was called, it's clear that Trump's denial of these things, as he tried to do in 2016, as he really, really tried to do in 
in this recent election. It's clear that that is going to cause violence. Um, political violence over contested elections has been on the rise all over the world, and it, it is going to be no different in America. Quite frankly, um, I'm 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 just quite glad it was so contained in a certain way. I feel like we have dodged quite a bullet in what could have happened in terms of uh, everything from sort of white nationalist terrorism to, I mean, there has been various plots to kidnap um, democratic politicians earlier last year. I think the Capitol riots, as far as political violence is concerned, was thankfully quite light. And I think people are being very diligent and I think people are very importantly pointing out how muted the government was, the complete lack of, you know, tear gas and automatic weapons, which they were happy to use on other protests and other riots. And so it's been good to see people really hold America to account on this. But I, I, I simply think they, they got off lucky with a, a five person death count. And it's tragic to say, but I'm, I'm seriously worried about um, the future of America and people's safety, really. Yeah, I think I, I was actually working on my um, college's telethon that evening and took a five minute break and, and went down to my lounge, not knowing what on earth was going on. And I see everyone standing around looking at someone's laptop and they're all watching it. And I'm saying, what on earth is going on here? So I guess I was kind of surprised, but then when you take a step back and think, actually, no, I'm not that surprised. But what what I said right then and there was, I cannot believe that, that the way that these police officers are treating these people, because it's quite fair to say, and I think a lot of people have said it, if they were Black Lives Matter supporters, it would have been a bloodbath. And that's frankly horrifying because what those people were doing was essentially some of them terrorist activity you know a lot of more lives like Dan pointed out could have been lost that and, and thankfully they weren't it, it was a very small death count and um, the way that the police officers dealt with them and left them there for that long was worrying it, it, it was terrifying because it seems to be very still still an issue in America and, and in other other countries as well but primarily in this case America that they treat people differently based on the colour of their skin. And even in this case, it was so abundantly clear. So that to me was the most horrifying part of this, this whole story. And, and something I think people will continue to point out every time. It's only a matter of time until the next Black Lives Matter protest. And, and hopefully we won't see anything bad happen, but the likelihood of it is quite high and, and it will go back to this. So I hope people do continue to point out that well, that was an issue. And I, I'm really glad to see so many pe people use that part on social media and actually spin it in a positive way because it's continue. We should continue to progress with the way we're thinking and challenging our assumptions because I think we all have those unconscious biases of thinking, oh, are they really going to do anything bad? They're just a, a group of silly white men that are 50 years old. Are they actually going to do anything horrifying? Well. What would we think if it was someone that was 25 and a, a black man? We'd think very differently about it. So in that way, it's, there's, there can be some positive team from this. I think you really focused on the institutionalised aspect of it, which was really important, and obviously how the police acted. Um, it's come out quite recently that um, one uh, congresswoman 
um, the emergency button in her offices, which they used to call if there's an attack, were ripped out at some point before the attack had happened, which I think is is terribly sinister. And if this and if this investigation uh, comes out as as I think we can imagine it would, it really does show it really does show the extent to which there is sympathy for this sort of thing. I mean. Uh, I've realised I'm sounding silly now because I'm saying there's sympathy for this kind of thing in high office when Trump has literally sympathised with this for four years. It, yeah, I think it, it's important that she pointed out how institutionalised um, some of this can really be. Obviously, um, Dan's comments there were just pending investigation by the FBI, uh, just to make that clear. And it was quite very uh, clear from you, Kira, mentioning mentioning. Uh, Black Lives Matter protests and uh, there was a powerful image of what the capital was like when BLM protests were taken last year with uh, armed guards at the front of the capital um, when that was happening compared to what was happening last week. So since uh, the 6th of January we have seen wide condemnation from all political, from all sides of the political spectrum, uh, even those who have previously supported President Trump. Uh, for example, in the UK, Piers Morgan, uh, who was a Trump fan, you know, he was happy that he got in in 2016 as a friend, now stated uh, on Good Morning Britain that Trump is not is a threat to US democracy and the Trump critics have been right about him all these years. On Twitter, we saw videos of Trump, Trump voters turning on uh, Republicans such as Mitt Romney uh, swearing and abusing him in an airport. Observers described conversations between the protesters as unhinged, violent and aggressive uh, and they were riddled with conspiracy theorists and misinformation. The, the FBI has warned that violent protests uh, across America during Biden's inauguration week. A YouGov poll found that after the event 65% of Republican voters approved of the incident at the Capitol. Um, so my question to you, and I think it's a very important question in the next few years, uh, obviously in the UK we've had Brexit, uh, coronavirus will obviously continue to be an issue, but I think this is an issue that's been rumbling around for quite a few years now. And uh, my question is, uh, what do you think about the growing impact that misinformation has on society? And who is responsible for this misinformation? Is it Twitter? Is it the Trump presidency? Is it supporters of the Trump presidency in the media? So what are your views on that? Um, I think, uh, obviously, it's a complex moral issue. You can't blame on a single individual at all. This is a very complex web of political forces. But chiefly, um, I, I would lay the responsibility on those who have abused these tools for political gain and uh, effectively courted and incited this sort of insurrection um, for the sake of keeping their seat. Um, you know, obviously at the forefront, Trump, who this whole thing has been a desperate bid to try and keep him in power, but also the Republicans that have tacitly supported him, um, even, even though they're backing off now, quite frankly, they should have realised that when the President of the United States starts calling for violence against the deep state, they should they, it would be ridiculous for them to deny that that was going to cause a riot. Uh, this is, I think, the blame 
primarily eyes on those people, the people who actively spread this misinformation and often, you know, benefit from it politically by building up a, a very loyal base. I think, um, obviously, I think it's quite easy to blame uh, things like Twitter and Facebook and social media companies, but I think they are just the sort of medium to the sort of thing. I obviously, the, the thing which you've got to, I think, remember about these companies is they're just run by some bloke who invented an app, really, and, and their board of directors. These are not the people who should be moderating free speech. These are not people qualified to be moderating free speech. And frankly, the question of um, hate speech, political violence and violent speech is a very complicated and well-researched question that should have been addressed and should have been moderated by various intellectuals through legislation. So I, I think I pin the flame firmly on the government, specifically those in government who have used these uh, platforms to spread hate for their political gain, because it is on them to regulate the companies which um, you know work within their borders. And a part of that, they should be the ones who are seeking out people to help regulate speech properly. I think I agree. Um on the point about it laying with people that are in government and use this misinformation to advance their own political agenda. But I think I take issue with the idea that the, the social media companies are not responsible for shutting down this, this misinformation. I think these companies are worth extraordinary amounts of money, often put their headquarters in places where they don't have to pay much tax are now collecting vast amounts of data about people and using it to give them targeted ads towards politics which is only spread helps to spread that misinformation even more but there's still the element of what 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 responsibility lays with the individual that's spreading this misinforma misinformation i think that's really true dan and i think we even have to think about our own behavior as individuals when we're clicking share and thinking is this information true or not and there's yes a lot of that in this case was from Trump but on other times it's also from other people that like to spread misinformation and that's that's with stuff Trump says but it's also on issues like the coronavirus vaccine There's one of the biggest dangers I think our society is facing is misinformation surrounding things like public health and something the government, various governments can have to think about in the long term of how to effectively deal with this but what scares me about them shutting down Trump's Twitter account and then thinking about his impeachment soon is in shutting him down are they only going to allow these people to say well this is this is what the media want they want us to shut us down they want us to not to, to not have a voice and that is what actually is the dangerous part because are oh, we going to have another incident like the one we've already seen if they, we keep shutting down those voices as well and i think it goes back from from decades of people not being listened to and a lot of that also comes from the fact of things like even small things a lot of things feeding to the Brexit vote and in America is real wages are not are not rising and people are struggling even especially the middle class and this is where you get issues of extreme political opinions like the ones we're seeing now so it's really dangerous time because it's a, it's a dangerous mix of that happening alongside misinformation so how government's going to deal with it is not one that I think I can answer <laughs> in the space of this podcast Okay, well, thank you very much, you two, for your really good conversation. Of course, there was a lot, uh, 
of events happening over Christmas with regards to coronavirus. So in 2020 will be the year uh, remember for coronavirus. And last year was a tough year for uh, many uh, that have family members who sadly passed COVID. But also it was a year where other uh, people suffered other illnesses um, and also people who required treatment for severe illnesses today had their appointments delayed and that caused some stress. We had people who lost jobs uh, and we had, you know, three million people in the UK who were left with no income, no support by the government. So I don't know who listens to this podcast, but I hope that uh, whoever you are, 2021 brings you better times than last year. We have covered coronavirus a lot in this podcast. And it will continue to be discussed in future podcasts. However, today I thought it probably wasn't right uh, to talk about it because it'll be a, a future uh, topics of uh, future episodes. So thank you very much, guys, uh, listening. Uh, thank you very much to Kira and Dan for uh, discussing these topics with me. And I hope you have uh, a lovely week and I uh, hope you listen to us next week. Goodbye. Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.